Today we begin an adventure in the first letter of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. Before, before you turn there, though, we're going to read the account in Acts in just a minute, so you might want to start with Acts 18. I call this an adventure because that word does adequately describe Paul's experience with the people in this church. We get a remarkable and important picture of a first century church trying to navigate life. And to do so in a large, thriving, diverse, and very immoral city in the Roman Empire in southern Greece. And because Paul did know these people very well, their interactions are really fascinating and so helpful to us as well. Why? Because the world they lived in reminds us of very similar issues and problems and temptations. And let's start by understanding exactly where the first century church of Corinth was. This is primarily for the kids to see. We're going to be looking at this area right here, the Mediterranean. And right here is Corinth. If I can get this still, and it's not going to work. It's not really this big. It's right there. And for the little kids that are wondering where we are, we are around on the other side of this globe. You can't see where we are. So that's Africa and Europe and the Middle East. Now we're looking here next at Paul's second missionary journey. And it's described in Acts 15, 36 through chapter 18, verse 22. Now we're going to try to start in just looking what's going on here. Paul started this journey from Antioch up here north of Israel. And he went this way through Derby and Lystra right there and picked up Timothy at this point. Then they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That's where Paul wanted to go. So they ended up going through it and here in Troas... God called them to go into what is Europe, okay, across to Macedonia. Um, Philippi is an important city that he stopped at right there. And um, Lydia, we have one of those. Uh, from Theatira became uh, a believer there. They, and also they picked up uh, Timothy, no, that was back in Lystra, sorry. Um, so they continued around, and there's Thessalonica, and they ended up right here in Athens. That's hard to see, it's a little too dark, but it's right there. And at Athens is, is where Paul got to share the gospel and explain 
um, what truth is at the Areopagus Areagop- um, to a bunch of philosophers, Epicureans, Stoics, and God really worked to open their minds to even hear more. Um, we miss Berea, which is right here. After some trouble in Thessalonica, remember the Bereans were known for taking the word of God seriously and actually searching the scriptures to find out if what Paul said was true. So where is Corinth? Corinth is marked it's right here in a very strategic location. Um, this is a little strip of land that connects this part of Greece, which is the Peloponnesus, with this part of Greece. And there's a word for that. Remember your world geography courses? That's called an isthmus. Isthmus. Um, After Paul left being in Corinth, just to show you the rest of it, it's pretty well marked. He went over to Ephesus with his friends, Aquila and Priscilla. They stopped there for a while, and then Paul continued back to Israel to complete the second missionary journey. So towards the end of this second missionary journey, in A.D. 49, Paul gets to Corinth, which was the capital of uh, the Roman province of Achaia. And Corinth, obviously, is pretty close to Athens, but it was the chief rival of Athens. And as you can see, that narrow piece of land joining the two parts of Greece there, this is really important. It has a lot of, uh, to do with why Corinth was what it was. Now, the seas just south of Corinth, right around here, were known for unpredictable, really fierce storms. So... What happened was the ships tried to avoid that area if at all possible. In other words, Corinth was on a main route from the east, I mean from the west over here to the east. And of course Rome is over here in the boot, didn't quite make the map. But what happened because of the fierce storms, the ships would come up through this area of the sea and they would dock here and then carry in wagons and stuff all the cargo over to the other side where they'd load on another ship and continue this way. That saved going around the Peloponnesus and avoiding the storms that they never could predict about 200 miles. So it was a a very important route. Of course, the same thing worked if you were going to the east. You come in here and dock and get the stuff across. Now, there, there's something else really weird about this. If you, if you read a whole lot, you'll find out that the Romans actually paved the shortest part across, about four miles, across this little isthmus. 
and they used logs to haul the ships up on them, and then they had a bunch of logs, just picture this, the ship on it somehow, I can't imagine how many beasts of burden had to pull that thing. Now, granted, these ships weren't as big as what we think today. They were all a lot smaller in size, but they still were cargo ships. And they'd pull the ship up on a whole bunch of logs. And so they'd push or pull the ship along the logs that would roll. Then they'd take out the first log, go around and put it in the back. And they kept going like that until they took the whole ship across the land. If it happened today, they'd be posted all over Facebook and everything else. Look, I saw a ship going across the land, sailing across the land. But because of that... Um, Corinth was a very, very important commercial center. It's a focal point of much of the traffic going east and west in the Roman Empire there. It doesn't take too much imagination to figure out how much wealth was generated because of Corinth's geographic Location. This was the main trade route going east and west. The Romans, Roman Empire's capital city, of course, was Rome, which was west of Corinth across the Ionian Sea that I pointed out just a minute ago. It would be about over here. And if you're going the other direction, all the main big cities that Paul went on this journey are on the east side around the Aegean Sea and then if you wanted to go farther or if you wanted to go up to this area you could do that as well it's kind of a uh, not just a focal point it was a strategic where everything kind of got plugged into this one place so there had to be a lot of people supporting all those endeavors So it was a business center, a commerce center, travel center, and its culture was wild, crazy, and diverse as well. Um, Many Roman soldiers had, when they got through with their service, would retire to this area. There were Jews here that had been kicked out of Rome by Claudius right about the time that Paul got to Corinth, actually a little before that time. There was some ruckus in Rome, and the Jews were blamed. So the Christians who were, there were Christians in Rome at this point, and because they came out of what most people saw as Judaism, they were lumped into that that group. So when the Jews got kicked out, any Christians among them also also, um, got kicked out, and they had to leave. Many of those people ended up in Corinth or some of the surrounding areas. Now, can you see why Paul saw Corinth as a very strategic place to proclaim the gospel? It doesn't take too much to understand that. People that became uh, believers and followers of Christ here many times would be traveling to the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire, one of the reasons why Christianity spread so fast. Paul stayed in Corinth about a year and a half 
before he left. So he got to know the people in the church there very, very well. The letter to the Corinthians was actually written while he was in Ephesus, not on this journey, but on the third missionary journey in a couple of years. Paul didn't stay hardly any time at all in Ephesus on this one. He just stopped and then traveled on. This was not his first letter to the Corinthians either, the one we have, 1 Corinthians. There was an earlier letter known as the Lost Letter that obviously had not been preserved, and he refers to this in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. So the first letter we actually have, we call 1 Corinthians. If you are able, would you please stand as I read Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens... And went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Achilla, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, what's that? They were all tent makers. He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe seated.
Well, let's look at the one and a half years that Paul stayed in Corinth. So after arriving, Paul stayed with Achilla and Priscilla, fellow Jews, fellow tent makers, and they were probably already believers. The emperor Claudius had kicked all the Jews out, as we said, in A.D. 49, and this couple ended up in Corinth. During this time, Paul reasoned in the synagogue, we read, on every Sabbath and tried to persuade, you notice, both the Jews and the Gentiles anywhere else he was. In Acts 18.8, we saw that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. There was a lot going on, especially when Silas and Timothy came. The ministry really intensified. And we see the Lord's encouragement in this vision where God said, For I have many in this city who are my people. This was especially important since the next paragraph we read that the Jews united in an attack against Paul, in which Paul was brought actually before the proconsul and the judicial tribunal with the charge of what? Persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. And Galileo paid no attention to this and drove the Jewish accusers out. <clears throat> now what did this do? Well, it established a real interesting legal precedent here. The legal precedent that Christians were innocent of transgressing Roman law when they were merely teaching and following Christian doctrine. Can I ask a question? How important was this precedent for the future proclamation of the gospel all across the Roman Empire? It wasn't just here. It was sort of the way to think about this in the rest of the empire as well. You know how lawyers love their precedents. Everything else that we find out about these Corinthian believers and their church comes from Paul's two letters to them, which we do have. And as Paul leaves Corinth to finish that second missionary journey, things look very, are fairly stable. There was a lot happening. Many people were becoming Christians, believing in Christ, and being baptized. And... Paul and his helpers were busy in a great sort of way. But now we see in 1 Corinthians, the letter will be in for who knows how long in the future. We find out that in the next few years, many troubling issues have arisen among the believers in this church. This letter, honestly, is one of the wildest in the whole Bible. It's like nobody's covering up anything. And I hope all of you realize that as we go through it, we will deal with every question imaginable that affected these people's lives that's so similar to the world that we are living in as well. Well, it shouldn't surprise anybody that living in a bustling and important city like Corinth, which among other things had 
a well-deserving reputation of rampant immorality, that, that would bring constant challenges to anyone who desired to live out their new life in Christ. But, being in the world, but not of it, that would become a common theme in most of Paul's letters. But here in this city, the importance of dealing with why this is important and how to do it, being in the world, but not of the world, had to become an essential element of every single day. You know, one thing we forget is that Corinth was off and on, as, had as many people in it almost as Amarillo. And you go, well, that, we're not big. Oh, yeah, well, try to put all the people that live in this community between here and I-40. Over to Georgia to Bell. What would it look like then? No place to hide. Behind Corinth, and you can look up this picture if you want. I was going to have it, but thought, nah. There's a 2,000 foot, basically a mountain, right on one side of Corinth. And the top is flat. And on top of this plateau was the temple of Aphrodite. This explains a lot of the immoral behavior. The good thing about that place was that if the city was attacked, literally the whole population could cram on top of that plateaued, cut-off mountain that was so steep all the way around, it was really hard to attack and assault and gain entrance. So um, this was a weird kind of a fortification that, that had been uh, important to this city. How to live and navigate in a world like this is what this letter is all about. And if sound doctrine and understanding of how that doctrine impacts individuals and the church is not taken seriously by being taken to heart, then the reputation of the Savior is literally dragged through the mud in the eyes of those who do not know him. Now, who am I talking about there, them or us? Both. Not to mention the tragedy of individuals whose lives become no different from the non-believers around them. And as Paul writes this letter from the city of Ephesus while on his third missionary journey, a couple of years after his own time here, we see him dealing with real-life situations with people he knew, mostly, that have been brought to his attention. How? Both by word of mouth and through a letter that some of the Corinthians had written to him, asking questions. And you can tell from 1 Corinthians when he's answering these questions and when he's dealing with these issues, which is why it's so fascinating. 
The wide range of topics he addresses not only tells us how many troubling things are happening, that's for those of us who think half empty. The half full is, but also how wide reaching the gospel is in its application in the lives of Christians, which is how you have to go after this. The gospel not only teaches us to forsake division and disunity, a huge problem in this church in Corinth, but it also gives us the resources to pursue true Christian unity. That's mostly what chapters 1 through 4 are about in this letter. The gospel instructs us how and why to be sexually pure, and to relate peaceably with our fellow believers. That's mostly in chapters 5 and 6. The gospel instructs us how to think about singleness, about marriage, about divorce and widowhood. That's in chapter 7. Helps us to think about how our lives in the culture's that we are a part of, what they should look like, with either wholesale withdrawal, without either wholesale withdrawing from the world or ungodly compromise in the world. That's what the gospel will do if we apply it. The gospel also teaches us, by the way, that was in mainly chapters 8 through 10. Also in chapters 8 through 10, we see how the gospel teaches us to use our Christian freedom for the glory of Christ and for the edification and well-being of his people in the church. The gospel teaches us how to order our lives together as husband and wives, chapter 11. In the Lord's Supper, chapter 11 also, and on other occasions of public worship, chapters 12 through 14, and it gives us a sure hope of life beyond the grave, chapter 15. Hear anything he misses? What chapter do you know is in 1 Corinthians? We'll get to 13 in just a minute. There are a tremendous amount of often quoted what we would call famous passages and verses in this book. And I look forward to getting to each and every one of them. Even if we're walking through it. Okay, all these themes that Paul deals with in this letter can also be dealt with in several other ways. And one way is to think of Two main areas of application, and this will help because it's so simple. All these issues really either deal with conflict within the congregation or with compromises with the non-Christian hedonistic values of the culture they live in. So all of these issues are either about the people in the church not being able to navigate 
loving one another, caring for one another, or they deal with compromises with the world they live in outside the church. And I think that really helps. And there's not a dividing line on whether they're inside the church or outside the church. These areas are dealt with as Paul deals with each issue, and they're just kind of woven through the whole book. But they're very obvious. But even these two main areas of application found among all the multiple topics and themes that I went through first, all of that points to a much bigger picture that encompasses all of what these people and you and I need to know about the gospel and its application. This is why this book is so rich. In other words, we don't want to miss the forest because we're zeroed in on the trees. Paul is obviously really, really concerned about these people. He had spent a year and a half teaching, discipling daily. That's all he did, basically. Maybe a few tents on the side. And so did his helpers. So I want you to try to keep in mind how his pastor's heart was so burdened for people that many of them had come to Christ after they heard him proclaim it. And what those relationships were like and how the burden affected him and turned him more and more to depending upon the God that he was proclaiming. And he didn't quit. So, who is he writing to? He's writing to the people in a church. Do you think maybe he knows how to address all this? Because he knows what the church is for and what the church's purpose is in the plan of God? I think so. Like the cosmopolitan Corinthians... We, too, have trouble understanding how much we need what God has provided in the life of the church. But even that understanding, while important, is backwards. Let me read that again, see if you can see why it's backwards. We need to understand how much we need what God has provided in the life of the church. It's backwards because it starts off using individualistic terms about me, about you. And that's really missing the big point. If we say, what can and does the church do for me? People that come in with that attitude are the first ones to leave when something happens or something, somebody else comes in, they don't like, they don't know one thing, and man, they hit the road. Sometimes it sounds like a great reason, but many times it is not. 
It revolves around personal preferences. It revolves around misunderstanding of what God wants to do in the church. So that can't be the first question. That's an important question, and it's answered. And obviously, God loves us, and he meets our needs, and we get that. But we just push that right up to the top. It's, we're wired that way. It's got to be about me. I'm the ultimate authority, and if I don't, blah, 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 then I will, blah, blah, blah. The first question has to be, what does coming together in the church do for God? Can you answer that question? We kind of hit this in Sunday school today. You ladies hit it in Daniel Saturday morning. Mark Dever's work on 1 Corinthians, in there he shows how Paul uses this letter not just to put out all the fires, but rather how to blow their minds with God's purpose for them. Seeing yourself as a part of this living organism, the body of Christ, can only happen and grow if you see yourself apart because God put you in it. If you see it as, well, I'm here because it's got the prettiest building. The biggest lawn. The right color carpet that matches my college alma mater. The this, and I haven't mentioned the big ones that most people are concerned about. You know what they are. If that's the reason you're here, something's missing. There has to be something behind that. You may like a lot of that stuff. That's good but there has to be a bigger reason behind it all. So, why did he join us together in Christ? God put you in it, a local church, this one, along with me and a lot of other diverse characters trying to think of a nice way to include us all. We all have our issues. None of us are perfect. This is an important thing to understand. And why did he join us together? And the answer just shows us how easily we miss the point. Here it is. God intends to display his own reflection in the church to manifest his own character. The church is to be the manifestation of the living God in the world. How we treat each other is seen by your friends, co-workers, neighbors, and everybody else 
around that you know. And it gives people a picture of how God treats people. Manifestations of his character through us. Not individually. That's how we always think. That's important. But it's more important about how he sees the group operating. That's what each and every one of us has to get first. And that's why you and I are here first. To manifest the character of God together for his glory. Remember, the chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is his idea. It's not mine. It's not yours. It wasn't the Puritans or the pilgrims. The church was God's idea to display his glory in a way that could not be displayed any other way. And folks, when we get this, the Christian life begins to change. And Paul, when he gets that message from some people that he mentions about what's going on and what's changed in a couple of years after he left, and when he got their letter, breaks his heart. Not just because the people are hurting. Why is it breaking his heart? Because it's dragging God's reputation through the mud. With the non-Christians in Corinth. Who are looking at these people going, Well, they're not any different than us. One of the big issues in this church the people were suing one another. There was sexual immorality of the gross variety in the church. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. And when we read this, we've got to ask ourselves, what breaks my heart when there are issues amongst us? Yes, it should be the people involved. It hurts. But what should really hurt is if God's reputation is being damaged because of the foolishness that we are exhibiting. Does that make sense? In fact, a good marker of your maturity in Christ is how much you are concerned about what I just said. Are you more concerned about getting your way or having that person gone because you can't get along with them or blah, 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 blah? Is that what you're concerned about? Are you concerned about what that does to God and his reputation amongst the people in the world that he has put us around? That's the issue. Paul is writing to teach what I would call young in the faith Corinthians about the church. Specifically what should characterize the church 
and why these particular characteristics must, must typify the church. So do you see how realizing that the purpose of the Lord's church, of which Christ is the head, to display God's own reflection in the church, to manifest his own character, do you see how that purpose will directly affect every one of the issues the Corinthian church has? If I'm concerned about God's glory, then it will take a lot less long for me to calm down, be humbled, and ask for forgiveness or try to be a peacemaker amongst us. It will also give me the courage to stand up when I know there's a heretic in the place. Do you see how that works on both sides of the coin? But when we stand up for courage, we don't come out with guns blazing. We come out with courage standing on the rock, and we still deal with people as peaceably as we can, but not compromising the essential truth. Both sides. The church is, be, is to be the manifestation of the living God in his world. Why do we forget this? How often do we say the Lord is head of the church? Well, what's the rest of it look like? I remember uh, in college hearing a great illustration, and the guy was a lot younger than me, so he could do this. But he stood up and he, he was teaching about this particular idea of the body of Christ. And right in the middle of it, without any warning, he just started spasming out and hitting himself and slapping him and kept going with the message. And, of course, everybody didn't know whether to start giggling, laughing, whether he was really having a, a, something like an epileptic fit, which was very serious. But after a while, it was pretty obvious what he was doing. What was he doing? He was demonstrating how the church looks to the world when we act like fools. Never will forget that. Hope you don't either. It would be better if I could do it, but I would really hurt myself, so I, I won't. Every one of their problems will only be dealt with if they as individuals united to one another as a congregation of Christ's church submit to the word of the Lord that will be directed to them by the Apostle Paul. And we know this is going to take time. And we're not used to taking time on most things. We get impatient. Some of us, that's our middle name. Remember how... Ages ago, there was actually parents who named their children. Girls, patients. Remember that? Okay, you don't. You never heard of a person then. It happened. It's going to take time. And you know what? One of the bigger problems begins to grow larger as Paul addresses all this in this first letter. So it's going to take time. In 2 Corinthians, guess what Paul has to do there? Without reading your introduction to 2 Corinthians real fast in your Bible. Paul has to defend his own ministry and his apostleship because of the false apostles who gained such a following during all this mess. 
So you can see how big the mess is. If the church is supposed to manifest the living God in this world, then what should characterize the church and why? Three things that the church should be, which come up over and over in many different ways throughout this letter. We're to be holy, united, and loving. Whole. H-U-L. Holy, united, loving. Because God is holy, and because God is one, and because God is loving. This isn't something we muster out of our own strength. This is something we do because this is who God is. Holy. This letter begins by greeting the church as people sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. What's saint mean? Holy ones. Paul uses several other characteristics to describe what he means by holy. Holy means different from the world. The Christian message and its wisdom are vastly different from the world's message and wisdom. In verse 21 of chapter 1, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God, most of us don't like this verse. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. How many of us have idols in the world named this person or that person because of their accolades and where they teach and, and they get written up and there's articles in all sorts of secular magazines. How valuable is that? And the Christian will always appear as foolish to the world, which is what chapter 2, verse 14 tells us. Now right there, right there, many people who are not here for the right reason say, I'm out of here. If I have to be looked at as a fool by the world I live in because I believe in Christ or I say I do, then I I didn't sign up for this. Well, I hate to tell you this, but yes, you did. Which means you may not be the real McCoy if that's what you're going to get ticked about. Holy means special to God. Chapter 3, you are God's temple. And God's temple is holy. That's in this argument for sexual purity. But the, but the idea is much bigger than just that. Holy means pure. In chapter 5, Paul deals with church discipline, which means it's about the purity of the local church. Because an unrepentant person in the Corinthian church was accompanied by many who tolerated his sin. Serious sin, which is a warning for all about how sin spreads when it's not confronted. We see in this description, holy meaning pure, that Paul is rightly concerned about the gospel itself being subverted. One commentator writes this, If you cannot say what the church is not, you cannot say what the church is either. If the morality of the church is no different from the world's morality, 
How will the world see a distinction between itself and the church? Good question. We also see that church discipline is meant to warn people. It enables people to see the seriousness of their sin and wake them up to their true condition before they destroy themselves. Discipline also preserves the purity and the witness of the church by dealing with hard hearts that continue to resist repenting. Why? So that they then will, at some point, genuinely repent. That's the point. So the summary is that the local church is to be holy because God is holy. But being holy doesn't mean that we're a bunch of self-righteous, prudish people. It means that we're a community that recognizes what sin is and does. And because Jesus' redemption really does deal with sin, we can offer our church's conduct as an example of people living with one another and honestly facing their sin and its destruction. How? With grace and power of Christ's cross and resurrection. That's a long way of saying what? We can be real. Take off the mask. Run to the cross. Be humbled by him. Walk with him. Now, how different does that look from the mess of the world? Very. Secondly, the local church is to be united because God is one. These people had a serious unity problem, which makes perfect sense because they started out by tolerating sin. I don't, you see how that works? Paul appeals throughout for unity. Uh, one place is in the first chapter, starting at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, there's how he found out, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. I think when a local church tolerates sin, the door's wide open for internal divisiveness. Wide open. Listen carefully to Paul's rebuke in three, verse 3. For you are still of the flesh, or worldly. That's what he writes. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Yes, there are higher expectations. And then in chapter 6, we find out the Corinthians were even even suing each other. These matters must be sorted out internally. And And as we think about this, and we'll continue to think about it as we go through the letter, we've got to be very careful about making some cultural issue, maybe even an important issue, the main issue that unites us, that unifies us. Do you you all understand what I'm saying? Some cause, something that's, that's good that you can do on your own, but if that 
what people unites us here. If that's what this is about and it's not him, then something's off. We're not talking about some of the bigger issues that are rooted in Scripture and that are so clear. Those issues, we better be united on. So may we have the wisdom to be able to discern all these distinctions. And why must the local church be united? Can you answer that yet? Why must the local church be united? Because what? God is one. In chapter 8, verse 6. Listen how Paul does this. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and for whom we exist, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist, one. The life of the church depends entirely upon God and Christ who is one. Chapter 10, verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This is a beautiful picture of the Lord's Supper representing the church's unity with Christ and one another. Except when you get it, it's just all broken up already. The point is, it was one loaf. Pieces come from the loaf. Chapter 12, about the gifts of the Spirit. There's a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. Variety of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who portions to each one individually as he wills. And then the next verse for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. Comes close to saying something about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? Our unity with one another as the body of Christ is a gift of the Holy Spirit who makes us his body. Disunity in this body means that we're lying to ourselves and to the world about who God is and what he's like. The local church, thirdly, is to be loving. Why? You should have this down. Because God is loving. Our love for God and his, as his church should be a response to what he has done for us in demonstrating his love. And of course, this is where we get into chapter 13. But this is woven throughout the whole book. Let me prove it. Chapter 8, Paul teaches that love should determine how Christians use their freedoms. Chapter 9, Paul discusses there his own example of laying aside his right as an apostle to be married and his right to ask for financial support from the church. Lays it aside out of love for what God's called him to do, him specifically, not everybody. Chapter 10, he teaches them to be most concerned with what would be most beneficial to me, to you. 
Chapter 11, he rebukes them for their unloving spirits and selfish behavior. Guess where? Chapter 11. While they're taking the Lord's Supper. There was a famine in this part of the world because the crops failed in Egypt in the middle and late 40s. So they didn't have enough food. So the rich people come in, as a, and this was a huge banquet, which they did. And they, you know, just ravenous appetites, just get rid of it. And the people that came in later didn't get anything. That was celebrating the Lord's Supper. Man, he got on them. Chapter 12, he tells them that all of God's various spiritual gifts are given for the building up of the whole church, not themselves. Kind of the same message. Chapter 14, he continues that theme with even more emphasis given to the building up of the whole body. It sure seems like Paul knows how vital this heart of love for the Lord is, which pours out on others. We, we need to hear Paul well here. As a burdened missionary pastor, Paul needed to hear more about this love in the church instead of all the divisions and turf wars. He wanted to hear about growth of people's love and care for one another because of what God had done for them so that the whole body could grow in grace. Now, as we wrap this up, we need to get some things. In in a church that has learned this lesson, you will hear over time, about the blessings these kind of loving people bring to their brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not asking for names, but I want you to think about it. It is amazing and beautiful to see how God gradually commits different ministries and all sorts of opportunities into the hands of certain people Because they love him and are willing to quietly give themselves in love for others without a particular concern that they be right all the time or even be recognized. They give blessings. They are blessings. If we took a secret list, I bet you that most of us would list the core group of people that You don't even have to think about it. Who blesses you? And every one of us can grow in that area. Every local church is called to show then God's holiness, God's unity and his love to the world. That's God's purpose for his church. And the world, do I need to say this, desperately needs to see this reflection of who God is. 1 Corinthians is one of many books in the Bible that deal with what God's people and his church are supposed to be primarily concerned about. It's all over the place in different forms. Because Paul is using real experiences to teach this one church how to biblically deal with all the messes they've gotten themselves into, and because this church was in a city rife with immorality and greed and materialism, and opportunities to stray into almost any sin known on the planet, we will learn much 
to open our own blind eyes to our own weaknesses and sins and also to God's effective, powerful, and faithful truths that we so need to stand on, operate with, and encourage each other with. I think the ladies who attended the brunch seminar yesterday and heard Nancy Guthrie's exposition of Daniel will immediately, which I snuck in here and listened, watched too. It was good. Uh, Anyway, you ladies will see so many similarities to the themes. Two different books, two different settings, but most concerning how to live in faithful trust upon the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Dependence upon him. You've got to know who you are. You've got to know what will last. You've got to know who to depend on. You've got to know who lived this way. And you've got to know how the story will end. Paul's short summary version of all this is in 1 Corinthians 10, 21. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for providing it to us. We thank you that we have access to so many resources. Oh, Lord, we know what we're here for. Because of you and who you are, we desire that you'd work through your grace in this church that we could manifest holiness and unity and love. And the only way we can do that is to know you and to depend upon you and let you work your grace in and through us. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for the benediction? Share one Almost humorous thought. The most, the the benediction that we use the most here is the last verse in 2 Corinthians. And after doing this this week, I I laughed in my office for a second because I realized I said, Paul finished the second letter and all the stuff he's been going through, look how he sums this up. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with y'all. Amen. You're dismissed.